The Lord said to Moses, Depart, go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt, to the land of which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, To your offspring I will give it. I will send an angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go up among you lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. When the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned, and no one put on his ornaments. For the Lord had said to Moses, Say to the people of Israel, You are a stiff-necked people. If for a single moment I should go up among you, I would consume you. So now take off your ornaments, that I may know what to do with you. Therefore the people of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments from Mount Horeb onward. We are still in the midst of the story of the golden calf, which functions structurally in the book of Exodus as the climax, the the final turning point. We've come so far only for them to erect a golden idol and worship it in pagan revelry at the feet of Mount Sinai. Now Moses has put a stop to that. And God has said last week that he will not destroy the people, but we saw that chapter 32 didn't exactly end on a positive note. The Lord had sent a plague among the people that ravaged them. And God offers Moses no further instructions. And we know in Leviticus and Numbers and so on, there is more that God had to say on the mountain. But here God tells Moses, just go, just leave, depart, go up out of here. And he says, I I will give you the land, I promise I will give you everything I said to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but I'll send an angel, not myself. I'm not going to go with you because you are a stiff-necked, stubborn people. And if I were to stay among you, it would be dangerous because my wrath would burn hot and my justice would consume you. I will not go up among you, he says. And it says that the Lord sent Moses to tell the people. Deuteronomy 9.25 tells us that Moses, at this point, was on the mountain for 40 more days and nights. He was up there for the first 40, receiving the tabernacle blueprints, comes back down for the golden calf, and then apparently goes back up for 40 more to intercede. And the word that God gives him is, I will not destroy the people, but you all leave and take off your ornaments. That is, take off anything that is to beautify you, anything that is celebratory. And Moses goes and tells them, and it says, they took off their ornaments from Mount Horeb and The ESV and several other translations add the word onward at the end of verse 6. The Hebrew there just says they took off their ornaments from Mount Horeb. And the word for from is the word min in Hebrew, and it implies the beginning of something. So it can be understood one of two ways. Some translations have they took off their ornaments at Mount Horeb, solely speaking of the location. And some of the newer ones imply that they took them off and never put them on again that this was the beginning of a a mourning season for them that that never ended, or at least we're not told exactly when it ended. So you can ponder that in your own heart and come to a decision. And you see, they did this in obedience to the Lord because God told them, stop celebrating. Because first of all, the celebration had got them in trouble in the first place. But secondly, it says they do this out of grief. They're not going to get dolled up and look nice when the Lord himself has not only sent a plague among them, but has said, I'm not going with you anymore. The pillar of of cloud and fire will no longer go before you. You'll go, and I'll make sure you get what you need, but I'm not going to be there with you. It calls this a disastrous word. This message that Moses brought was disastrous. 
and the people are grieving. But a carnal mind might ask, why? Why are you so upset about? You're still going to get your blessing. You're still going to get your land. You're still going to get an angel to go before you. Nothing wrong with silver, right? So why are you so worried about God himself not being there? I thought the Lord scared you anyway. Didn't he just send a plague among you? Because the blessing is not enough. We may have all the blessings of life, health, money, love, status, and power. But if we lack this one thing, we shall remain poor. And that one thing is the presence of Almighty God. As the psalmist said in Psalm 84, verse 10, one day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. He says, I would be rather the guy that opens the door at the temple and says, welcome, please come on in, than be some rich sheik living on oil-rich land in the middle of the desert. Because one day in your presence is better than a thousand anywhere else. Now let's examine this for a moment. We talk about the presence of the Lord. We sing about it quite often. We need to understand this theologically. God, of course, is omnipresent, meaning God is everywhere. He says, I fill heaven and earth in the book of Isaiah. Psalm 139, verse 7, David writes, Where shall I flee from your presence, O Lord? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I descend to hell, you are there. So we know that God is everywhere, meaning space is not a hindrance to the Lord. But this reference to the presence of God, what we mean when we speak of God's presence or God, come here, you are welcome, we invite you here. We are referring to the active, attentive presence of God. That he's not just in the vicinity, but that he is participating in what's going on. You might call this the imminence of God. The Bible often speaks of it this way. And there are some that get rather stuffy about referring to the presence of God. And they don't like songs that say, come Holy Spirit, because they say, oh, the Spirit is always there. The Bible itself speaks in such terms. It speaks about God coming or descending or falling upon people. John will say, suddenly I was in the Spirit, meaning God was manifesting His presence. The song we sang earlier tonight, I think, is a, actually a very balanced theological statement when it says, let us become more aware of your presence. We know you're there. We just want to know that you're there. Let us experience the glory of your goodness. That's what we mean when we say, come, Lord. We know he's here, but we want to encounter the Lord. And God has just said, I will no longer be among you in that way. You will no longer have an encounter with me. You will no longer experience me. I will no longer engage in your day-to-day -day matters. I will no longer lead the way personally. We've seen this several times already. That the Lord has spoken. The pillar of cloud and fire has moved to protect the people. We'll see this more as we continue the story, that God will intervene and step in and speak at various moments. But here the Lord is saying, I'm not going to do this. This was an incredible tragedy. And just as we said last week, the story of the golden calf is an echo of the Garden of Eden and the fall of man. This also is an echo of the curse that came upon Adam in the Garden of Eden. It says that the Lord used to walk with Adam in the cool of the day in the garden. 
You spent time with him every day. But when they sinned and ate that fruit, they were driven out from the presence of the Lord and an angel stood with a fiery sword to prevent them from returning. Man was banished from the presence of God. And here, Israel, who had just entered into this covenant to be restored in a measure to the presence of God, has just sinned a great sin and is now going to experience a similar consequence, which is to lose that presence of God. And the third sin, of course, that we discussed last week, the third of great sins in Scripture was the crucifixion. But the crucifixion was all the work of God in order for us to regain the presence of the Lord. Jesus said in John 14, 23, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. How about that? Jesus says, I and my Father will come to you and make our home with you. We're going to move in to your life. That is the blessing that the Christian experiences. But it is possible, as we see here in this passage, to, as Paul says in Thessalonians, quench the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God is often compared to a fire. To quench a fire is to let it die, to pour water upon it, to quench the presence of God. That you can live a Christian life, even experiencing the blessings of the Christian life, and yet not be experiencing the presence of God. Just as the children of Israel would gain the promised land and yet not have the presence of the Lord. Sin, doubt, disobedience, legalism. These are things that God will not abide, but his presence will depart from such things. In Judges 16, when Samson finally had Delilah cut his hair, he heard the Philistines had come. He woke up and he said, I will cast off my bonds and drive them away as before. But it said he did not know that the spirit of God had departed from him. What a tragedy. He did not know. The Lord had finally had enough. And if you read the story, he had finally broken the last of his Nazarite vows, the last stipulation of the Nazarite, which was to never cut your hair. And he had finally violated that. The Spirit of God will depart, sometimes for a time, sometimes forever. The result, what does it look like when the Spirit departs? How do you know when you're not, as we say, walking with the Lord? It's a dryness of spirit. And you don't always notice it right away. Usually it comes gradually. You begin to realize that you're dry. The Word of God has no flavor for you. You read it and it seems just to be words on a page. Prayer that you once delighted in becomes a labor. Your heart becomes petty and little selfish, childish attitudes and sins and words begin to manifest themselves. Your joy is lost. Your peace is lost. Even though externally you may still doing, be doing many of the routines and rituals of a Christian, you are not experiencing the presence of God. And that is because all the abundance that a Christian enjoys can only come from the active presence of the Lord. Jesus said in John 17, this is eternal life, to know you, the one true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. So when you are not walking in harmony with the Lord, when you have walked away, as we say, your soul will dry up. For that reason, for a person or a family or a church or a city, or even as we see here, a nation to lose the presence of God, 
to quench the spirit, to drive him away, to make it so that the Lord is no longer welcome and to no longer seek him is, as it says, disastrous. It says in verse 4, this was a disastrous word and they mourned. In Ezekiel chapter 10 and 11, Ezekiel is given a vision of the temple. He was in Babylon. He had been exiled, but this was before the final destruction of Jerusalem. He has a vision of the temple in Jerusalem, and the Lord walks him through the temple and shows him all the idolatry that was going on in the temple. And then he has a vision of that grand glory of the Lord with the sapphire plain and the wheels within wheels and the angels that move. And he watches it get up and move down through the city of Jerusalem. And at every corner, he's seeing more idolatry, more sin, more corruption. And it says, eventually it moves out to the Mount of Olives and departs from the city. And the people had no idea. In Samuel's day, when the Ark of the Covenant was stolen, there was a child born and they named him Ichabod, Ichavod, which means no glory. For they said, the glory has departed from Israel. There are few things more tragic than the loss of the presence of God. And the people rightly mourned. So we read in verse 7, down to verse 11. Now Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp, far off from the camp. And he called it the tent of meeting. And everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. Whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people would rise up and each would stand at his tent door and watch Moses until he had gone into the tent. When Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent and the Lord would speak with Moses. And when all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, all the people would rise up and worship each at his tent door. Thus, the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. When Moses turned again into the camp, his assistant, Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, would not depart from the tent. Now, the story here, this might seem odd to you why this would be included here. What is happening is the, the writer takes a detour to discuss the habits of Moses concerning the presence of God. God has just said that he will no longer allow his presence to be among the people. And in verses 7 through 11, we get an example of what that looked like and how Moses himself was right at the center of the presence of God among the people. And in verse 12, Moses is going to intercede for the people. He's going to step in and pray for them. And so in a sense, the text is establishing his credentials, as it were. Moses was accustomed to bold prayers in the presence of the Lord because he spent time there frequently. It says he had a tent that he would pitch off far from the camp. You mustn't confuse this with the tabernacle that has not been built yet. This is describing Moses' habit as they went through the wilderness to Horeb, and we can assume after that as well. This is the tent. In a sense, it was a prayer chapel. You can go out. Anybody who was welcome to go and seek the Lord there. The tent of meeting, he called it. And when Moses would go to the tent, it was an event for the people of Israel. They would wake each other up and say, hey, come look, Moses is going to the, to the tent of meeting. And why would they go and look? Because as Moses entered into the tent, 
the pillar of cloud, the Shekinah glory of the Lord that was fire by night, that had stood between Pharaoh and his armies and the children of Israel at the Red Sea, that cloud would move and go to the tent and stand there. And as I've often said, you mustn't think of the pillar of cloud as a wispy thing that you could barely see. This would have been probably something along the lines of a tornado, giant billowing cloud. And at night, it was seen that this was not, this was not just cloud, this was flame. And it would move to the tent until Moses was finished praying. And they would watch him and they would worship and fall on their faces as they saw this. Clearly, Moses was welcome in God's presence. He was familiar with God's presence. He spoke to God, it says, face to face as a friend. The last person we heard that about was Abraham, who was called the friend of God. God would speak to him so directly. We spoke of Jacob wrestling with that man in the night that was the angel of the Lord. But this is something beyond either of those things. God, of course, is present in all the world. He was uniquely present with the Hebrews. And yet we see even among the Hebrews, he was personally and especially present with Moses, which tells us there are degrees of encounter with God. That you may not know God or be as familiar with his presence as somebody else. And that it largely depends upon you. We've just discussed the furthest degree of the absence of God, when the glory departs, when the Lord says, I will no longer be in your midst. But let's look for a moment at the nearness of the presence of God. What does it look like when we are in God's presence, when God goes with us? What does that look like? Well, Moses knew God intimately. Abraham did. David knew the Lord intimately. He had come to know him through long years. He was young, but long years out in the fields tending his flocks. And I tell you that the same is available for you and for me. Romans 8.15 says, You did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. By the blood of Jesus, you have been adopted into the family of God. You have as your privilege... And your inheritance, whatever the privilege and inheritance is of Jesus Christ. Your opportunity to be in God's presence is greater than Moses' ever was. Moses drew near by faith as we do, and yet Moses had not yet had his sins atoned for at the cross. You have. The Spirit of God would fall upon Moses, but it was only after Pentecost that the Holy Spirit came and dwelt in and among God's people. You live in those days. Moses did not even have the fullness of revelation. You do. Your opportunity to draw near is greater because while the people of Israel might say, Lord, I'm one of Moses' followers, you can come in and say, I am a follower of your son, Jesus Christ, which means you have as much access to God as Christ does. So we must not read this story and think that was something unique to Moses that is off limits to you. There is no ceiling on how much you can know God. So then, knowing that theologically, believing that because the scripture tells us, how are we to practice God's presence? 
We might say, how are we to familiarize ourselves with the presence of God or to experience the nearness of God? We need to look no farther than to Joshua himself. I wonder that the whole nation didn't do this. When Joshua saw Moses going to the tent, Joshua didn't just stand outside his tent. He followed him in. I'm going in there too. And then when Moses left, Joshua didn't leave. I'm going to stay here because I want to know God like that. The focused pursuit of God, that focused, intense pursuit, that willingness to lay other things aside for the pursuit of God. And I'll tell you that the pursuit of God, going after the Lord and getting in his presence is not a complicated thing, just as it wasn't complicated for Joshua. Go into the tent and pray. And we should very well begin with prayer. That's what this chapter is largely about, with dedicated prayer. It is so unfortunate that many of us in the church are just as guilty as Peter and James and John in the Garden of Gethsemane. When Jesus came to them and said, could you not watch with me one hour? One hour? You watched four hours of Netflix yesterday. You couldn't pray with me for one hour? Prayer is air, Christian. It's knowing the Lord, speaking directly to Him. And the thing about prayer is there is no physical or material benefit from prayer. It is exclusively spiritual, which is why we have a hard time, so to speak, justifying prayer. I got so much to do. I don't have time to pray. You look through church history, the great men of God, it didn't matter their theological stripe, didn't matter their temperament, what era they lived in, what culture they lived in. They all were men of prayer. Martin Luther said, normally I spend two hours a day in prayer, but today is so busy, I better spend three hours in prayer. He didn't say things like, I'm so busy, Lord will understand, I'll skip it today. Prayer, you got to talk to God. It's so simple. The act of prayer, as you know, is not hard, but the dedication to sit down and do it is very difficult indeed. How about commitment to his word? Open up the Bible and read the Bible. Learn the scriptures. I myself have been reading through Proverbs again. And I'm seeing things in there that I go, how have I missed that? How have I missed that? Not only have I missed that, how has this never been quoted in connection with this or that passage? Because the word of God is so self-supporting. You must know the word. It's God's word. If you want to be careful to know what God is and is not saying to you, you must learn carefully what he has said to others. What he has said he'll never say. Things he has promised, things he's not promised. Things he's warned us against. Memorize the scripture. Read the scripture. Study the scripture. Chase down questions. Look to other godly teachers that can instruct you in the word. Study, read, and memorize your Bible. Fasting and self-denial. Fasting is saying, God, I'm going to say no to something that I like and need so that I can spend a set amount of time seeking your face. Usually it's food. Take a break from eating. We do it every day. It's a really good thing to take a break from. Now listen, you, you go, you can skip lunch four times a week and not think a thing about it. You decide today's fasting day, all of a sudden you're like, well, I can't skip lunch. I'm so hungry. Because it's spiritual. You are telling your body no, so that the next time your body wants something it can't have, you're used to telling it no and choosing the Lord instead. Fast from social media, fast from television. 
especially around this time of year when we celebrate Easter. It's a great time to say no to things. Self-denial is closely related to that, but it's just going through your life and saying, what doesn't need to be here anymore? What's weighing me down from getting to the Lord? If I'm so busy, I can't pray. Where's my time going? I got to get rid of some of that stuff. Worship, of course, coming to the church and singing, singing on your own to the Lord. There's a lot in the Bible about singing praises to God. I don't like those songs. That's irrelevant. <laughs> There's so many. You can, pick, you can find one you like. Amen. Read the Psalms out loud. Let that be your worship. Fellowship with other believers. Spend times with people that are going to encourage you to walk with God. Service in the church. Take some time to put your energy towards spiritual things. Meditation on the Word of God. Just sitting and thinking. I read a quote recently that said, If you know how to worry, you know how to meditate. Focus on something over and over and over again. That is how we cultivate the presence of God. They're simple, and yet they're profound. Our God is personal. In fact, He is, you might say, super personal. He's three in one. So you need to spend time with Him like you'd spend time with a person, because He is. Talk to Him. Listen to Him. Invite Him to spend time with you. A relationship with God is not just something you have in opposition to religion. It's not a religion, it's a relationship. That's all well and good, but do you have a relationship? Or do you just not like the word religion? That's not the same thing. All the great men of God who knew him well set us this example. Even Jesus Christ himself in Luke 5.16, as busy as Jesus was, it said he would often withdraw to desolate places and pray. Jesus. There were people looking for him with demon-possessed kids. And even with that level of pressure and opportunity for ministry, he says, I need to get away by myself and talk to my father. What an example for you and for me. Paul in Philippians 3 verse 8 says, I count everything as loss. Meaning when I add up the value of everything that I have, everything that is not Christ is in the negative column. Because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Notice that. I count everything as loss so that I can become an apostle? No. I count everything as lost so that I can reach the world with the gospel. Not even that. I count everything as lost so that I can write these profound books that will be read for all time. No. For the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. That's why Paul was content to make tents for 14 years. Because he was knowing the Lord. That's why he can say, I can be abased and I can be exalted. Because I've got Christ with me everywhere I go. He says, for his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. It's personal that I may gain him, not doctrine, not opportunity, not a purpose in life. Him, Christ himself, his presence. And I think the greatest example of someone who knew the presence of God is from Genesis 5.24. There was a man named Enoch. It said Enoch walked with God and he was not. For God took him. Enoch walked with God. And while everybody else was living in that time to be 900 years old, he got about a third of the way through that, 300 years, until the Lord just said, Enoch, just come up here with me. You live in a wicked generation, and I want you here. Can you imagine that? 
in your, in your daily devotions, when you're spending time with God every day and you are so close with God, you have such a relationship with Him and God loves you so much and He's so eager to speak to you that one day you're out walking. I love to go out and walk at Cosby Lake and pray and sing and you're out there walking and, oh, well, Lord, I, I better be getting back. And God goes, why don't you just come a little farther this time? Just come up and stay with me. Enoch knew God and God took him because God goes, you need to be up here with me. Why don't you just stay all the time? The door is open for you to know God personally as a son or daughter. If you will but walk through it, there's nothing too great to be lost in that pursuit. There's nothing too pressing or valuable or interesting that should be able to keep you from the presence of God. As we sang tonight, if God may be known, nothing else matters. If God is waiting for me to seek after him, and if I can find him, what am I doing here? What am I doing wasting my time on this? Or devoting my life and all this time and energy to that, and nothing to pursue God. So if that is possible, and Moses himself had found the possibility of knowing God and and living in his presence, when God said, I'll remove my presence from Israel, the people rightly lamented and wept. He's he's not going to be here anymore. We'll go to the tent of meeting and just pray. Oh, he'll hear us, but we'll never encounter him again. But Moses was a man who knew the value of God's presence because he was often there himself. And therefore he was uniquely prepared to intercede for the presence of God on behalf of his people. He was a good leader because he was not content just to bring them the blessings of God, not just to bring them the mission of God and success in the Lord's name. They needed God himself. So in verse 12, Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, Bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you've said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now, therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. And he that is the Lord said, my presence will go with you. And I will give you rest. And he said to him, If your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us, so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, This very thing that you have spoken, I will do. For you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. You must consider the boldness of Moses here. God is angry with the people and is right to be angry with the people. God has already shown incredible mercy by not striking down the people. He's shown mercy by allowing the people to retain the blessings that he was going to give them. And yet he prays and says, that's not enough, Lord. First, he confesses that the task is too big for me. He said, you've told me to go out, but how am I supposed to do this? I'm not up for this. What a change from the man that struck down the Egyptian, thinking that the people would rise up in a rebellion behind him, huh? 
says, the task is too big for me. Second, he appeals to God's personal favor for him. Oh, that we would all know God so well that in our prayers we can make personal appeals like that. Say, God, you know me. We're friends. If you love me, will you do this? And third, he reminds God that the Hebrews are his chosen people. And his request is that he might know the Lord and find his favor. What's he asking for? God, I don't know you enough yet to do this job. We need your presence. It's non-negotiable, Lord. He even goes so far as to say, we will not leave this mountain if you don't go with us. I will sit right down here and starve to death if you don't come. For apart from the presence of the Lord, he says, how is Israel different from anyone else? What right do we have to march on Canaan? if we don't have you with us. And God listens to the voice of Moses and agrees to go with the people as originally planned. He agrees to pour out his mercy upon the people. How could anyone persuade God to stay with people like that? God, keep your presence among these people that just built a golden idol and worshiped it with sexual immorality in your name. And God agrees. When God says, I will destroy them, no, Lord, and he then won't destroy them. And then when God says, I won't go with you, please come with us, and he agrees. So how how can anyone have that kind of influence with God? Well, as the Lord said in verse 17, I know you by name. Why did God agree to this? It was Moses. It was because God knew Moses. Because Moses had spent time in God's presence and spoken to him face to face. God didn't change because of some secret plan that he was manipulating Moses to tell a story. God changed his mind because of Moses. Now, again, don't think that God was about to sin. God changed his mind from one righteous course of action to another righteous course of action, from showing justice to showing mercy. Those who have spent time in the presence of God and know him intimately, are able to plead before God boldly. And he listens to them, as you might listen to a trusted friend. You might have a plan. You might be so worked up. You might know exactly what you're going to do. And you get that one phone call. That one person says, don't do it. I know you have every right to do it. I know that nobody would fault you for it. But please, I'm asking you as a friend, don't do it. And maybe you even said these words, if it was anybody else asking me, I wouldn't do it. If it was anybody else saying this to me, I wouldn't. That's the kind of relationship God had with Moses. And you might say, well, that's Moses. I'm not Moses. No one knows my name. No one's going to remember me. I've already said, and I'll say it again to remind you, you have the same right of access to God, not that Moses had, but that Jesus Christ has. Is Jesus greater than Moses? That's the name that you pray in when you pray. 1 John 3, 21 through 22 says, Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. Whatever we ask, we receive confidence before God. Very often when I was growing up, my father was the pastor of our church. I would invite friends over and they'd be intimidated around my dad. 
And it was always funny because we'd be goofing off and cutting up. And then dad walks in the room and they, you know, straighten up and mess their hair. And oh, they're going to be all nice and act all, oh, yes, sir. Yeah, absolutely. Yes, sir. And, and my dad used to sometimes mess with them and like get in their face and ask them tough questions. And, and then I'd be like, dad, come on. And they'd look at me like, you can't talk to the pastor that way. It's like, well, I know he's your pastor. But it's my dad. I can talk to my dad that way because we have that kind of relationship. You know, I'll be talking to some of y'all and I don't think anybody in this room would be willing to come barging in if I'm having a serious conversation with somebody on a Sunday morning. My kids do it every week. (laughs) It's not because they're disrespectful. It's because they are accustomed to having access to their father. How much more are you as the adopted sons and daughters of God? Jesus has invited us to pray in his name. He says, whatever I have before God, you have. So the door is now open for this kind of intercession. And the most important prayer that can be offered is for our people to know the presence of God. For your family to know the presence of God. For your church to know the presence of God. For your school, for your workplace. You might think, God's not at my work that is Ichabod, man. The glory has departed from that place. You know that you have the right of intercession before God to ask for him to manifest his presence at your place of work, Amen. in our city, in our halls of government, in our nation. We have that right. And Moses refused to proceed without the Lord. And that's probably what makes the difference. Much as Jesus charged the apostles, do you remember? He has risen from the dead and given them commission to preach to all the world. But he says in Acts chapter 1, verse 4, But tarry in Jerusalem. Wait. Don't go yet. They had been given three years of instruction with Jesus Christ. They had been given power to perform miracles and cast out demons. They had personally witnessed the resurrection. The Holy Spirit dwelt in them, and yet the Lord said, Not yet. Wait for my power to fall upon you. Wait until Pentecost. And here is the danger, Christians. It is possible. It is possible for there to be all manner of activity and motion and work and religion. And yet the presence of God, the Holy Spirit, is nowhere to be found. It is possible for the church to be active and doing things and teaching things and doing things in the community and even achieving success and recognition and yet for the Spirit of God to be nowhere to be found. I believe it was Jim Cimbala who said, if the Holy Spirit were to depart from the American church today, 90% of all activities would proceed uninterrupted. Now we're very quick to comfort ourselves with what Jesus said in Matthew 18, 20. Yeah, but Jesus said, when two or three are gathered in my name, he'll be there. So we are always guaranteed the presence of God. That is the wrong way to talk about the Lord. How many times in the Old Testament did the Lord say things like, do you think that I'm obligated to you? Do you think that I have to be here because it's the temple? You offered a burnt offering, so I have to listen to you? Oh, you came to church, so I have to listen to you? I might question whether or not you're gathered in his name in the first place. Yes, Jesus said, where two or three are gathered in my name, I will be there. But in the book of Revelation, when he writes his letters to the church, repeatedly he says, I stand at the door and knock. Jesus is outside the door. Can I come in, please? Can I come in the church? Is there any room for me? They had, as we said before, quenched the Spirit of God. They had put out the fire. They had dammed up the rivers of living water. 
Jesus said to the church in Sardis, Revelation 3, verse 1, you have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Everybody that looked at the church in Sardis said, that's the church we want to be like. That's a happening church. It's alive. There's power. There's ministry. There's teaching. It's wonderful. And the Lord looked at it and says, you're dead. It all looks good on the outside, but you're dead. It's like the viewing at a funeral. You make the face look nice. You dress the body up in the nicest clothes and you do the hair, but you look at it and it's unsettling. Why? Because you know there's no one there. It's a shell. It's a husk. And there are churches that are like that, that have a reputation for being alive. And the Lord says, you're dead. And what you need is a resurrection. So I'm standing at the door and knocking. How many church services are proper and orthodox and yet lack the true fire of the Holy Spirit. Not that the music was loud and the people were lively and that the preacher was speaking strongly, but that lacked the real presence of God. Hear me now, brothers. The presence of God is not intellectual assent to sound teaching. Sound teaching is important. It's in fact non-negotiable. But you can proclaim sound teaching all you want and the church is dead as a doornail. Oh, it was a good doctrinal sound message. God was really there today. Are you sure? Because the Pharisees had really sound doctrine. And yet God was not there. It is not the mood of a dynamic worship service. And this is, this is an, a problem that has infected modern worship today. And I think it comes from a good place, but I think it also comes from a largely immature place. The worship leaders are there to bring the people into the presence of the Lord. But we've come to believe that if we play the music well and everybody gets excited, that is the presence of the Lord. So rather than doing it in a spiritual way, we focus solely on the method and on the practice and think that if we do our work, then God must show up. And that if everybody was excited, then God was there. If people were weeping, then God was there. If people's hands were up and they were jumping, then God was there. I've been to lots of concerts and those things happen everywhere. You play the music loud enough, you beat the drums loud enough, you get the song going, you, you get things emotional. People will weep. They'll lift their hands and shout and they'll jump and they'll celebrate. And all that is good and is intended to be used for God's purposes. But we must never confuse that with the presence of God. And the presence of God is not found in great Christian success. Look at how many people came to our event Oh, we just built a brand new sanctuary. God must really be here. Oh, I hope so. But that's not, that's not of itself evidence that God is there. Nothing was more grand than the temple, and Ezekiel watched the glory depart, and nobody noticed. It's not how many people came to the crusade. It's not how much money did you raise. It's not how many people are following you online and listening and how much, how much tithes have come in and how many public officials have recognized what's going on and how many celebrities come into your church. That's all great. I hope we see all of those things. But that itself is not evidence that God is there. You can go into a tiny little church that no one will ever find where there's two or three people and an out-of-tune piano singing old songs that nobody remembers and a preacher that doesn't have a whole lot of skill and yet God will be in that place. Amen. The Lord our God, as I've said several times tonight, is a person. We talk about the presence of God. If he's not in here, he's not here. If I'm not in the room, my presence is not there. You can talk about it all you want. 
You can sing about it all you want. You can do things just like you know Tyler would like, but if he's not there, the presence of Tyler is not there. How much more so with the Lord himself? Was God here? That's the question. He is a person who must be spoken to and known. His presence is not some thing that we aspire to and maybe we'll get that. It's so simple. Was God here? Did he manifest himself? Was his presence dwelling among us? Therefore, we as churches must have the attitude of Elisha. In 2 Kings chapter 2, Elijah told him, Hey, Elisha, I need you to stay here. I'm going to be moving on to another city. And Elisha knew that God was going to take Elijah up to heaven. And so Elisha said, I'm not going anywhere. As the Lord lives and as your soul lives, I will not leave you. And they go from city to city. And every city they go and they have their worship service, some prophet will come to Elisha and say, Did you know that the Lord is going to take Elijah? Yeah, I know. And finally, they go to the Jordan River, and he says, the Lord's called me across the Jordan. And Elisha said, I don't care. I'm going with you across the Jordan, I guess. And Elijah struck the Jordan with his cloak, and it parted. And Elisha followed him across the waters. Meanwhile, hundreds of prophets watched them go across and didn't cross. Finally, when they get across the Jordan, Elijah turns to him and says, what do you want me to do for you, Elisha? He says, I need a double portion of your Holy Spirit. And Elijah goes, that's a hard thing, but all right. And then Elisha himself struck the river and crossed it. And they said, the spirit of Elijah dwells upon Elisha because he wouldn't let go. He was like, Jacob, I won't let you go until you bless me. I'm going to keep going. I'm not leaving. We're not leaving Mount Sinai, Lord, if you're not coming with us. We're not having church today if God's not here. We're not having the event. We're not singing the song. We're not preaching the sermon if God's not here. It is up to us to fall on our faces, to strip off our ornaments, and to refuse to move until He does. We have planned every service. We have structured things out. We, we are prepared to come, and yet we must always have the flexibility that if the Lord wants to intervene, then the Lord intervenes. Cornelius' house had the Spirit fall upon them while Peter was still preaching. And Peter had the good sense to step back and let the Lord do his thing. If we show up for church and the Lord is moving during the time of worship, then I'll allow it to continue. If I'm preaching and the Lord is speaking and we run out of time, who cares? I'm going to keep going. It is up to those of us who know the presence of the Lord, and there are those of you in here who do, to lead the church well. And to intercede on their behalf so that our church may be truly alive, not just successful, not just dynamic, not just sound doctrine, but that God is here. As Paul said in 1 Corinthians 14, I want people to walk in those doors and fall on their faces and say, God is really among you. That's the only thing that matters. And it may not always be an exciting, dynamic, memorable thing. There will be many days where we faithfully and obediently do what God has called us to do. Maybe the presence of God some days, all it can be is, is you know that God is pleased with what you've done. But are you prepared for the Lord to break in and take over? He'll do it. and You've got to be ready for that. And when He does that on a large scale in a lot of people's hearts, we call that revival. So in this story, the Lord said, I'm not, I'm not going to go with you. You're, you're going to make me destroy you. 
by your stiff-necked rebellion. And then Moses, who had a, had a history of cultivating time in the presence of the Lord, stepped in and said, this is too important. We're staying right here until we get this fixed. He had prepared himself to intercede for Israel. And the Lord agreed to go forth with them. The crisis that was the golden calf has been at least partially averted. Worst case scenario, second worst case scenario, have both been averted by the intercession of a man who knew God and spoke to him face to face. He understood as have so many others throughout the years and as we must, that apart from the presence of God, life is desolate. You're just in the wilderness if the Spirit of God is not leading you. Just because the people were moving and then were conquering and living in the land would not have meant necessarily that all was well. And in our case, just because the church is growing and the building is expanding and the ministry online is growing does not necessarily mean that God is with us and all is well. We must take stock as often as we can. Stop every chance and say, Lord, this is yours. We do this in your name. And we proceed in faith that we have heard your voice. But if at any point you've got something different to say, then just tell us. And we'll do as you say. Because the door is open for us to come to the tent of meeting. And the good news is that your heart, the Bible says, is the holy place, the temple of the Lord. You don't need to go out to a special tent. You can stop right where you are and speak to God face to face. In fact, it's better than that because God is not looking you in the face. He's speaking to you from within your heart. With all the authority and privilege of Christ Jesus, the only begotten Son of the Father himself. And Matthew 7, 7, Jesus said, everyone who seeks, finds. Everyone who asks, receives. As Jesus said also in Matthew 13, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. The presence of God, the knowledge of God, the kingdom of God, these things are worth more than everything you possess and everything that is true about you. There is nothing that you must not be prepared to let go to know God better. Isaiah 64, 7, he lamented that. He says, no one rouses themselves to lay hold of God. You've got to rouse yourself. Get up off the couch and grab hold of his garment as he passes by. Be like Bartimaeus. Stand up at the side of the road and shout and shout and call for the Lord. And when everyone says, be quiet, sit down, stop being so over the top, you yell all the louder until the Lord says, what would you like for me to do for you? The Lord is waiting to be sought he said, by a people who have not sought me, but by his grace, we will be that people. For our families and our churches and our cities and our nation, we will take responsibility for knowing the Lord, for he has already done all that is necessary to draw us to himself. The rest is up to us to take the steps. A generation of intercessors must rise up to know the Lord, to dwell in his presence and to intercede for all of us.